This is a WTOP original podcast. From Podcast One. Coming up in this episode of Target USA. A week ago, Secretary of State Antony Blinken said this. I've met with colleagues around the world who've been struck by these health incidents. I'm deeply moved by what they've been through. He was talking about Havana Syndrome. We will leave no stone unturned to get to the bottom of what and who is behind these incidents. And I'll have more to say about that in the next day. But for unknown reasons, that didn't happen. So the mystery of Havana Syndrome continues. And today, something that happened 40 years ago may help us process what's happening today. I was sent to Moscow as a correspondent then for the Associated Press back in 1980. Uh, And when I arrived, I immediately plunged into the the dissident game because I speak Russian and this was 1980 when we were very much in the Cold War. You know, sometimes I would be very conscious that I'm being followed, sometimes photographed, and, and my eye began sort of jumping. I developed a twitch in my eye. His name is Serge Schmiemann, and he suffered from something called Moscow Eye. I don't know whether this was just a nerves, stress, whether in fact it was the result of some kind of microwaves. I have no idea. I never checked it any further because it went away. And as we cover Havana Syndrome, he urges us to be cautious about characterizing it. Coming up on this episode of Target USA. The National Security Podcast. From WTOP in Washington, D.C., this is Target USA. Russia could render huge harm to this country. North Korea's secret missile. Capable of reaching the whole of the United States. Dangerous terrorist. D.C. is repeatedly mentioned as someplace they would like to seek an attack. Cyber criminals. Decryption successful. America has a target on its back. And on this program, we investigate the threats, the people behind them, the agencies fighting them, and the impact on you. This is Target USA, the National Security Podcast. I'm J.J. Green. The New York Times, Opinion Section, November 3rd, 2021. The title, The Mystery of Havana Syndrome by Serge Schmiemann. He writes, a long time ago, after I arrived in the Soviet Union as a young wire service reporter, and became acutely aware that I was being followed, my eye began to twitch. It became hard to work, so I flew to Paris to have it checked out. By the time I landed, the twitching had stopped, and the doctor who checked it out found nothing wrong. Back in Moscow, at a chance meeting with a U.S. Embassy doctor, I recounted this incident. Nothing strange there, he said. Everybody gets the Moscow eye soon after they arrive, and it goes away. He writes, these memories have resurfaced as I follow the saga of Havana Syndrome. This is a fantastic piece that's designed to invoke thoughtfulness and caution when assessing and deliberating what's going on. Not to jump to conclusions, but at the same time, not to insult the victims. So we got in touch with Mr. Schmiemann to ask him to tell us about his experience and look at what's taking place today. Mr. Schmiemann, thank you for agreeing to join us. Um, I read your piece with great interest this morning, The Mystery of Havana Syndrome. 
And I read it with great interest because I've been covering it since 2016 or so. And I've had the opportunity to meet a number of people who've been impacted uh, by these, these, these weapons uh, and are suffering from these symptoms. And I wanted to ask you, you, you talk about a thing called Moscow Eye. I wonder if you could just tell our listeners your story, what, what it was you wrote about. Yeah, well, my story is really not quite as, as horrendous as what people are experiencing now. Mine was, uh, I was sent to Moscow as a correspondent then for the Associated Press back in 1980. Uh, and when I arrived, I immediately plunged into the um, uh, the dissident game because I speak Russian. And this was 1980 when we were very much in the Cold War. And I would meet uh, dissidents very often. And, um, you know, sometimes I would be very conscious that I'm being followed, sometimes photographed, and, and my eye began sort of jumping. I developed a twitch in my eye, which wouldn't go away. It kept me from working. So I went off uh, to Paris to have it checked out, and it, it lifted pretty soon after the plane took off and completely cleared up by the time I landed. And it doctor in Paris. Uh, she was actually a member of the Communist Party, which was, I guess, a small irony. But uh, she told me everything was fine. And uh, when I returned, the doctor at the embassy, to whom I told the story, said, why didn't you come to me? You know, you, this is very common here. Uh, many people get what we call Moscow eye, and then it goes away. Now, you know, I don't know whether this was just a you know, just nerves, stress, whether in fact it was the result of some kind of microwaves. I have no idea. I never checked it any further because it went away. Uh, but it just made me more conscious of what all these folks were reporting. Uh, it's now come to be known as the Havana syndrome, uh, the symptoms, the neurological symptoms that people have been suffering. Now, they sound far more serious uh, than what I had. Um, and uh, far more people seem to be reporting them. So, you know, I'm not sure if it's all in the same category. It just prompted me to think about them a little bit more. So um, was it reading about these accounts or hearing about these accounts in the, in the news that, that triggered uh, your decision to write about this, or did you have you spoken to somebody? I know you mentioned one of the victims in your piece, Mark Polymeropoulos. Have you spoken to any of the folks? No, so I haven't spoken to him. I've, I spoke to quite a few people who followed it, who've reported on it, mm -hmm. and I read quite a few pieces about it, uh, as I'm sure you have. And of course, it's a subject that's been impossible to avoid these last few years. But, um, but certainly because my interest was triggered because it's it's uh, quite unique to work. Uh, in, in, in a hostile atmosphere. There's a lot of stress that comes with it. Mm -hmm. And a lot of the stress, uh, you know, as we used to say, just because you're paranoid doesn't mean it ain't true. Um, there may well be some surveillance equipment out there that is creating all this damage, or it could very well uh, just be a joint kind of group nerve stress, which are are also very powerful, and I tell you, very real. Um, you know, these are not 
just kind of things you're imagining when when your nerves begin giving you problems um, in a setting like that. It's a very, very real uh, experience. So take us back to that time frame you were in Moscow, because I know a couple of uh, State Department, retired State Department um, officials, uh, diplomatic security officials who were there at the time, and they they talked about this microwave activity that the 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 Russian that Russian intelligence was using um, against the U.S. embassy uh, compound and uh, U.S. embassy buildings. Um, so take us back to the. To, to the to the time frame and give us a, a snapshot of what the atmosphere was like living and working as an American in Moscow at the time. Yeah, um, no, you know, I was not in the embassy, of course, and the embassy didn't always uh, share uh, their um, kind of security information with us. They did it when it got fairly serious. I'll recount another in- incident uh, a few years later, uh, when I was already then working with the Times, the uh, embassy called us together and said that they had identified some stuff called, I think, HTTP or HPPD, HPPD, which we called spy dust. It was um, a substance which the Russians would put on uh, in, in an American apartment. And then when you touched it, if you handed a book or shook a hand of a Russian, they could... Uh, then identify who you had met. And the embassy uh, warned us that the stuff may be carcinogenic. Um, so I had my apartment checked and they found it on the doorknob and on the phone. And um, later they said, no, no, in the, in, the, in the quantities it was used, it was not carcinogenic. And afterwards I heard somewhere that it, you know, the stuff was uh, so fine that within a few days, all of Moscow would, would have it. I don't know how serious it was. You know, I lived uh, my life as as a correspondent um, and went about my duties. And and what I do know is that we were, um, I was followed and listened to, and I knew them, I saw them, I kept tabs of them. You couldn't. And I know it uh, played with my mind to a degree. When I would meet somebody, I would sort of be very conscious that I could be causing serious danger to that person. Um, it was a nasty setting. And yes, I did hear that uh, that microwaves were used either that, you know, but I mean, I heard it not um, on an official basis, but we would hear that microwaves were used. It could be uh, to pick up sounds from a window pane or uh, something in your apartment, or they were used to activate listening devices. You know, there was um, this, the word going around that some microwaves were being beamed. Um, You know, now again, we're talking about a very specific time and place, uh, Moscow in the Soviet era, when, you know, all of this was very real. Surveillance was very real. We were enemies uh, of their system. You know, we were perceived, I mean, as enemies, and uh, we were followed, listened to. All this was well known. You went there. It was regarded as a hardship post. Um, and it was sort of a matter of pride to be a reporter uh, in a setting like that. You know, it was like a, a front line, a war zone. Of course, it wasn't that dangerous. Mm-hmm. And in fact, it was a very safe place in, uh, to live and work 
for kids and families. But for reporters, there was all this tension and, uh, and surveillance. So looking at today, there are a number of people that I've spoken to, some of whom are um, family members of people who worked for the U.S. government or relatives of reporters uh, or a guy like Mark Polymeropoulos, who was a U.S. intelligence um, official at the time, and he got ill in, in Moscow. And I've heard a number of different stories about uh, the tension that exists there now. And I'm sure through your study and reading, and you continue to be a journalist because they say once a journalist, always a journalist. But I'm assuming that you continue to keep up with um, certain things, and you're certainly interested in this. What do you... What's your interpretation of what the, the, the situation, based on what you know, is like in Moscow now, in, in Russia now, considering all the problems the U.S. has had, all the things that have taken place, the leadership in Moscow, in Russia now? Let me um, go about this a little bit two ways, because, first of all, um, I think it's very important to stress in, in Havana syndrome, that we have really no evidence that whatever it is, uh, is uh, being caused by some equipment. And we have no evidence that it's being caused by Russia. Um, you know, I was wary when I was writing this piece that I would be giving the impression that I believe Russia is using some sonic weapons, some microwaves that's causing this. It may be. But it's very important to note here that we do not have evidence of this. Uh, there is really, for all the studies that have come out, I'm sure you've seen them, mm -hmm. um, there's nothing, nothing that has been conclusive, uh, nothing that has conclusively said that any kind of sonic equipment or microwaves are causing this, that it could be a sort of a group uh, reaction, um, uh, a group reaction to, to these symptoms that is re really not caused by any medical, uh, that has no real medical explanation except perhaps the stress. And so um, when I speak of Russia, it's to remember what it was like. And of course, to, to talk about a place that uh, would naturally be a suspect if there was any kind of sonic weapon uh, being uh, deployed. Now, to go back to your question, uh, I do go back to Moscow and uh, the Russians, um, Russia today under Vladimir Putin remains very much a place uh, that suspects foreigners. There's, you know, laws they have passed, the foreign agent law, anybody contributing, any Russian organization that has foreign participation or funds has to declare itself a foreign agent, any money that you bring in is suspect. And as um, you know, I don't know, but I would uh, certainly suspect that uh, foreigners are uh, followed and listened to, maybe at a different level. There are many more foreigners now living there, doing business, doing things other than government or journalism. And in my day, there were virtually no businessmen, there were really only journalists and 
and uh, government officials. Uh, so now there are many others, but um, it is the nature of that society and, and the nature of this regime that there is no doubt some surveillance. Now, again, it's important to note about the Havana syndrome that, uh, you know, it, Moscow is only one place where it's been reported. It was first spotted in Havana. It was most recently spotted in Colombia. I just had a letter from some doctor in Bogota. I just, you know, they're, they're as mystified by this, you know, why in Colombia, why in India, why anywhere. Uh, many, many different countries where this has been reported. So then what are we to presume that, that Russia is deploying some kind of devices in every major city where Americans operate? Um, or, you know, let's look at it differently. If, if the common denominator is, is Americans and their embassies, maybe it's coming from there. So in, in short, it's a mystery. And I think it's important um, not to leap to the conclusion that Russia is behind it. Uh, it's a possibility. You know, it's, it's uh, something that has to be checked out, but it's not a, it's not a given, certainly. Mr. Schmiemann, thank you for that, um, that reminder. And with that, I will ask you this question. Um, in talking to several sources, it's been pointed out that Russia, if there is this technology, microwave technology, is not believed to be the only country that possesses it. And you've mentioned a number of different countries. To my understanding, there are at least 15, maybe 16 now, that where these attacks have uh, taken place or reports of symptoms consistent with Havana syndrome have taken place. So there is this idea that maybe this does exist, but Russia is not the only one that has it and that others are utilizing it. Uh, and there's also the question about, um, you know, the, the vice president's trip to, to Vietnam the CIA director's trip to uh, India, uh, and the state Secretary of State's trip to Colombia. With the Secretary of State and the Vice President, their schedules are published. But the situation with Director Burns going to New Delhi, that's not published. And there are those that are wondering if there may be some kinds of some kind of communications problem. So as you say, there's no evidence, but there is a lot of there are a lot of unanswered questions about all of this. So I saw what you wrote near the end of your piece, and I thought that was <laughs> I thought you put that in in, in, a, in a perfect way. You said that does not mean there is no mystery weapon. In fact, thinking back on Moscow, I, I realized I never wondered whether it might have been caused by some KGB beam bouncing around my office. But the potential ramifications of such a conclusion for Havana syndrome and the undisputable, indisputable neurological symptoms of the Americans who've suffered from it for years now demand dispassionate and objective investigation, not speculative bombast. Are we still able to do that uh, as a journalistic community, considering what we're hearing and the, the numbers are increasing? And quite frankly, a number of people have felt insulted by me and other journalists who've said, are you sure about this? Yeah, I think... You know, again, you've put your finger on it. I think I have no doubt that we as journalists are still, I mean, from what I've read, um, all the good intelligent reports uh, have invariably 
pointed out all the various possibilities of what it is uh, and uh, you know uh, the possibility that it, it's not an actual weapon has come up in every one of them that it's a reaction um, and you know it, it to me as I as I wrote this is far too serious to be left this sort of a political battle between those who think the government is not doing enough and they should fire anybody who says the wrong thing. You really have to let the scientists and the investigators and uh, the intelligence folks study this because the people who are suffering from it are suffering. And, um, you know, uh, and they don't, they deserve to have uh, a really dispassionate investigation. And, uh, you know, when, when Senator Rubio, for example, shouts out that anybody who says mass hysteria should be, shouldn't be allowed to say that, it's not worthy. Well, you know, it's, it's a frightening term. It's, a, it's an insulting term. It implies, you know, you're not fully in control of your emotions and whatnot. But that is not the issue. The issue is that uh, real people are suffering real painful and serious symptoms. And therefore, uh, the investigation has to lead where it must. You know, this is in, in a way, like the debate over COVID, it should not be a political debate. It should be one in which science takes the lead. And in this case, of course, also intelligence. Um, I would like to think that our intelligence community has the uh, equipment sophisticated enough to, to spot uh, a weapon of this sort being deployed. And I'm troubled uh, that some of the people in the intelligence community who are supposed to be investigating this were released for purportedly not taking it seriously enough. I doubt that, you know, the station chief anywhere would not take it seriously if, if something like this uh, was alleged, because obviously security has to be uh, and safety have to be their their priorities, but I think all all the options have to be explored, and um, you know, and and we should not be leaping to conclusions, um, even about places like Russia, which so readily come to mind. It could very well be, uh, you know, some some technology that's that's available for sale out there. Who knows, like this Pegasus thing, or it could be mm -hmm. any other country. Uh, we're not short of uh, adversaries out there these days, uh, if it is. But, you know, uh, in your last question, you used the word these attacks. You know, even that already is, is, is a presumption that I think uh, we should um, make with, with care. Um, maybe these are not attacks. That has to be a possibility that we explore. That is fair enough, sir. And it, it is taken in the spirit with which I'm sure you're saying it. And um, being a person... But, you know, I use that word all the time myself. <laughs> I just... But being a, in this context, I, I raised it. It's certainly not well, being meant a, to... No, no. I Being a consumer of um, great journalists and an appreciator of people who make great journalism, although I'm still striving to get there, and certainly a guy who has a Pulitzer sitting on his mantle. Um, I, you know, who am I to argue with that? <laughs> but you make a great point, though. We have to be careful because with our words. And so thank you. Um, 
can I go back? Well, Sorry. Yeah. No, no. Uh, I was going to say, I've also um, checked out your program, and, and certainly it is a very worthy place to discuss such issues, and you've been doing a great job. Well, thank you, Mr. Schmiemann. Can I go back to your Moscow Eye thing? Um, mm -hmm. So about a week ago or so, I was having a conversation with a person who used to live in Moscow right around the early 80s. And this person's family um, actually were diplomats. And it's my understanding during that time frame that a number of American women developed breast cancer during that time frame, and they were all, as I understand it, living in the compound. Mm. To, to your knowledge, I mean, and there was this weird thing that came up um, in most of their stories about this building called the Russian White House, and I know you know that building. Did you ever mm -hmm. hear any weird stories about what went on there or activities that were based out of there? Ooh. No, I hadn't heard that. Now, I imagine if your uh, friend was recalling that, there was a huge compound across the river from the White House on, on Kutuzovsky Prospect. Mm -hmm. It was probably the biggest. Uh, that's where the AP had its offices. So I worked there for my, for a year before I went to the Times. There were uh, several compounds uh, scattered around Moscow, but uh, this was the biggest. Um, now, I've only had one colleague who many years later developed breast cancer. I can't think of a pattern uh, other, you know, one person probably fits into the normal um, range of, of probability, but I haven't heard of uh, many others experiencing that. Mm -hmm. Now, uh, there, you know, we, we did live, as I say, in, in a bit of tension in part because we didn't trust or didn't use the, the Soviet medical system. Um, so we were all pretty jumpy and ready to hop a plane and, and go west when my son developed um, appendicitis. You know, we took the risk of putting him on a three-hour flight to Frankfurt. So th there was a kind of jumpiness about, about health. But um, I haven't heard of a, of a pattern. And I, as for the White House... Um, I never heard of anything suspicious about it until uh, the uh, 1991 putsch when, when um, that was the headquarters that Yeltsin's forces actually shot. They shot con uh, percussion shells into a window to drive out the legislators inside. So, you know, it does have a history. Mm -hmm. But I had never heard of, of weird things coming out of there. Uh, on the other hand, you know, when you live in a setting like that, and you're talking uh, of an expatriate community, uh, not only Americans, uh, hardly, but a lot of folks, you know, Brits, Europeans, uh, Asians, who all lived in these compounds, and, and we lived together and got to know each other pretty well. Our kids played together in those courtyards, and there were always uh, rumors, there were always kind of rumors of something going on. Somebody always had a story of some bug falling out of somewhere uh, or of talking to the wall and then getting uh, getting that some problem resolved by complaining to a microphone. You know, so you, you lived in a kind of a setting where 
where these kind of rumors and stories uh, were were pretty much commonplace. Uh, not among kids, uh, I should say. We tried to keep our kids insulated from our paranoia, not paranoia, our <laughs> our reality. But um, <laughs> so you know, you would hear a lot of things. But uh, I have I have plenty of those stories myself. We assumed that a building that backed out onto our courtyard had very active surveillance and listening equipment in it um, and could never prove it. Some things we did eventually prove when things got looser, you know, we did find out which buildings were used uh, for surveillance. Uh, but, you know, it was very little that we could really prove. What I can do know is, for example, I was followed every time I went out, even when I went to walk my dog. Uh, I, I saw, I recognized the car. Sometimes I even recognize the people. And I think they wanted me to know. I think part of their game was to intimidate you, to discourage you from doing things by making it very obvious that they're following you. Mm -hmm. um, this was especially true when you went on a trip around the country. Um, you know, you they would make a point of, of showing you that they're following you. So as if to tell you, so if you want to do anything, like visit a dissident, we will know about it. Mm -hmm. It was a game. There was a game involved, and I've always wanted to learn more about it. And uh, maybe someday I will. I'm really mm -hmm. hoping someday to meet somebody who can tell me a bit more about how it works. So would I. So would I. So yeah. <laughs> my last question for you today is that uh, the sun begins to probably make its slow decline into the West today here in Washington a little too fast these days. <laughs> well, wait till next week. <laughs> time changes. <laughs> so by this time next week, it will be about dark. Um, it mm -hmm. is 4.48 p.m. Um, on a, a Wednesday here in Washington, for those listening, uh, on the 3rd of, uh, 3rd of November, 2021. Again, we're talking with uh, Serge Schmiemann, who is a noted uh, and a very, very, very good writer uh, for the New York Times and has done so many other things including enlightening uh, younger journalists like myself today, and I appreciate that. The last thing I want to ask you today, Mr. Schmiemann, is if we ever get to a point where we know what this is all about, what's taking place with this mystery, and it turns out to be um, a weapon, um, how... Is there a precedent for what what could be done? I mean, how do you deal with something like that? How does a government approach that? Yeah, well, you know, uh, you, you you put it, uh, I guess, in very stark terms. Weapon. If um, if some equipment is being deployed, whether for whatever reason, uh, if it is in fact causing uh, damage to people, to people's brains. It is a weapon, and and you have to treat it as such. You know, it it would have to, obviously, if we know who's doing it, stop real fast, or you take countermeasures. Um, it it would have to be treated as as a hostile act with all the actions and counteractions that implies. Now. To go back a step, surveillance, listening, and uh, spying, you know, are to a degree part of a reciprocal game that's gone on since the 
you know, since time began. And certainly uh, it's going on uh, fully right now. I mean, we have the NSA listening to everybody and, and uh, the CIA is all over the place and they're all doing a certain job, a necessary job. And, and we accept that others do it, we do it. Um, and within that game, there are, you know, certain, uh, certain rules, um, unwritten rules, obviously, but some things which are considered acceptable, some are not. Uh, but you know, like I presume listening to people is, is considered acceptable part of the game and you take your own precautions to, to block what you say from being heard. But if you injure somebody, uh, that changes things dramatically. Um, I mean, that just goes into a whole new realm. Mm -hmm. And it is totally unacceptable. And you take the measures that you do against people who are out to harm you. I'm not going to suggest what they are. I'm not in that business. But uh, you, you treat it as, as a hostile attack and, uh, and, you know, and put a stop to it immediately. Mm -hmm. Well, Mr. Schmiemann, thank you so much. For your time and your insight today, is there anything you'd like to add before we absolutely shut this down today? Um, no, I think we've pretty much, you know, covered the field. I, um, you know, enjoyed surprisingly much my years in Moscow, and would like to to perhaps only say that uh, this is things, you know, the things I described and the things that I endured were part of the job, but at the same time, there were tremendous people I met, uh, you know, and it was a tremendous experience to live in that society. Uh, and, you know, you, it's a good idea not to judge a society by the devious things its governments do. I think that's as true for our society as it is for theirs. So, um, you know, I don't mean to, to paint a um, kind of a horrific image of, of, of Russia, uh, but part of the experience of working there was to be aware of, uh, of an authoritarian kind of surveillance system, part of which survives today. And um, I do hope, I do hope very much in the end that this does not prove to be some kind of new weapon and if it is one, I'm surprised that it's taken so long for us to identify it. Uh, but uh, if it is identified as such, boy, I do hope they cut it off immediately. Well, thank you again, sir. I appreciate your time, and I hope that uh, we can uh, reconvene at some point in the future, and I can, again, pick your brain, because it is a, quite a fabulous brain to pick. Thank you. Well, thank you very much, uh, JJ. Well, it's been fun talking to you, and uh, I'd be happy to do it again. That was New York Times Pulitzer Prize winning writer Serge Schmiemann. Coming up in our next episode of Target USA Afghanistan, the Taliban is in control, but they're not running the country, and they may need some help with ISIS. But at what cost? Dr. Hans Jacob Schindler, Senior Director of the Counter-Extremism Project, puts it into perspective. Unfortunately, it's happening in Afghanistan is that what everyone feared after the Kabul government collapsed is that very fast, um, Afghanistan is developing again into a somewhat 
peaceful area if you are a terrorist for Al-Qaeda already and maybe in the future also for ISIS. And so our choice is whether we're going to have both fighting each other or we're going to support the Taliban to eradicate ISIS with a price that Al-Qaeda has even more space to go in Afghanistan. So the options are bad, worse and ugly. That's coming up in the next episode of Target USA. If you have any questions or comments about the program, send me an email. You can reach me at jgreen at wtop.com. That's the letter J, the color green, one word, at whiskeytangooscarpapa.com. jgreen at wtop.com. Please subscribe to our podcast, if you will, and follow us on Twitter. We're at TUSA Podcast. That's at Tango Uniform Sierra Alpha Podcast. And if you want more national security information, sign up for my newsletter, Inside the Skiff. And you can sign up at WTOP.com slash email. I'm J.J. Green, and this is Target USA. The National Security Podcast. Hey guys, Jay Cutler. Started a new podcast called Uncut with Jay Cutler. Most of you know me from the NFL. Some of you have seen me on Instagram. And some of you know me from the reality TV world. Each week I'm taking you along with me as we discuss football, trending topics, and whatever's going on in my life each week. I'm bringing along people that are special in my life. Former teammates, friends, and some new people that I like and respect. That's what you're supposed to do, right? Podcasting? I think I'm doing this right. Can't wait to get started with you. Go subscribe now. Uncut with Jay Cutler. Apple Podcasts, Podcast One, and Spotify. Or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, stay tuned for the latest headlines from the Associated Press.